Hey, I'm Omid Farhang, CCO at Momentum. With me today, John Meskel, Global ECD at McCann World Group and President of McCann World Group's Global Creative Council. In this dual role, John provides creative leadership across McCann's global brands, while also partnering closely with the network's creative and strategic leads across all corners of the world. Prior to this, John was Chief Creative Officer of McCann Australia, leading McCann Melbourne to become the world's most awarded agency in 2013, largely on the shoulders of John's famous brainchild, Dumb Ways to Die. It won five Grand Prix and 23 Lions, the most successful campaign in the history of Cannes, and one of the most legendary marketing efforts of the 21st century. To date, the video has been viewed 170 million times on YouTube. Since his move to Global ECD in 2014, John has helped lead McCann World Group's creative resurgence, with honors including Gun Report Agency of the Year, DNAD Agency of the Year, and Network of the Year accolades from The One Club, Andes, Effies, and more. He's been named to the Creativity 50, and Business Insider ranked him the eighth most creative person in all of advertising. I'm lucky to call him a mentor. I'm proud to call him a friend. This is John Meskel and I talking to ourselves. Where are you from and what did your parents do? Um, I was born and raised in uh, Melbourne, in Australia, down the bottom. Um, it's a big country and we're at the cold end of it. Yeah. So consequently, you know, I'm not a great swimmer. You know, everyone always says, oh, you're from Australia. You surf a lot, don't you? I'm like, no. Nah. You know? yeah. <laughs> I read a lot as a child. My, my parents actually um, had a lot of different jobs. They ran a what I guess you'd call a bodega here in New York City. We called it a milk bar yeah. in, in Australia. Um, but they met on the uh, trams, which is the uh, kind of the, the big public transport system in, in, in Melbourne. Um, he was a dad was a driver and my mum was a conductor. So she could have sort of collected the fares inside the tram and they met there. They foreshadowing. Um, I, yeah, I know the, my, 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 my career in public transport advertising. It's kind of weird, but, uh, um, it's funny how things, if you stick around long enough, I think everything just comes around. I looked at, um, at how hard my parents worked. Um, and it was, you know, pretty hard labor. You know, they didn't have sit on their ass yeah. um, jobs where they could use their minds. They actually worked for a living. And, you know, neither of them really, um, you know, went far into schooling. And they didn't really come from that world. I was the first um, person in my family to go to, to university. And I think early on I decided that I wanted to, you know, I wanted to make the most of my, of my mind um, out into the world rather yeah. than work for a living. So I, can, I almost I, think I pushed against, not necessarily in a, in a horrible way, but I think I pushed against um, circumstances and environment rather than took, um, took the lead from what I saw. Right. I can, so I can remember this time, you know, sometimes you stay late in our profession and uh, so you, you're, I was in a car on the way home and I was, it was about 10 o'clock at night and I was feeling sorry for myself. I had missed my children's bedtime and how hard I'm working and I was feeling like a real martyr and I came to a stoplight. Yeah, it was, it was almost 11 o'clock at night and I looked over and uh, there was these guys working construction. They were doing it late at night when the traffic was down. There was floodlights. There was three guys, you know, up to their, they were basically underground in this huge hole that they had dug out and they're up to their ears and you look and you're like, Oh, real work. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, poor me. You know, yeah. dinner was delivered and uh, I got to come up with ideas that made me and the people around me laugh and maybe solved an interesting problem in a, you know, in a, in a unique way. Yeah. No one wants to hear us complain. I know. You know they really don't. Oh, that's why we hang around with other advertising people. We're the only people that will, you know, yeah. listen. It's less unbecoming uh, when we complain to each other. Yeah. But, you know, look, I mean, it, it's... And again, I, I don't complain, but there's, you know, there is a built-in level of stress in any job where um, you start from zero every time, Yeah, you know. Um, and look, you know, it's funny, you know, in, in Australia, manual labor, you know, tradespeople do really well for themselves. You know, it's a valued profession. They, they earn good money. And I kind of look at those guys sometimes. I used to, you know, envy that sort of, you know, finish work at three o'clock in the afternoon and, you know, go fishing, go surfing, whatever, yeah. and get paid well for it. But... Um, you know, I kind of almost felt like I had no choice but to get into advertising. I was just, I was just drawn yeah. to it. The romance of the trade job for me is, yeah, you, you're done at 3.30 or 5 or whatever time and you look 
and you know exactly what you accomplished that day. Like yeah. the radiator is fixed. Yeah. The pipe has been repaired. Yeah. The, the, the yeah. scaffolding yeah. has been yeah. built. And these people can make things yeah. that you can look at and sit on. <laughs> you know, I think if I could do one thing that wasn't this, I'd love to be able to make amazing furniture. Yeah. And I just think it's the best thing because a beautiful piece of furniture is just so gorgeous and wonderful and, and you can source the, the wood from the tree to the finished product, yet it's useful. Yeah. As well. And, you know, we try and build utility into the work we make and we hope that at least good examples of, of the advertising and marketing profession is, I think, delivering goodness to the world, either in giving people a laugh or actually making some kind of difference or, you know, having some sort of form of utility in it. But, yeah. you know, you can't beat a chair and a table for, for utility, can you? Do you romanticize the building of a chair and a table also partly because there, it brings with it very little compromise. You decide the design, you get to make it. There's no yeah. assholes, you know, bearing down on yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think um, I think it's almost like, you know, I, think, I, I don't know what it would be like, but I imagine it's kind of like making a radio ad. There are so few moving parts. You know, if it sucks, it's all your fault. And if it works, you can take, you know, the lion's share of the credit. And I think designing a chair is probably a lot like that. And if you try and get too fancy, it's probably going to fuck it up for everyone. Yeah. You know, that chair that looks amazing and you sit in it, you're like, come on, really? I think it's the difficult part about this job is that it attracts people who, you know, have a certain kind of intrepid artistic spirit and want to make things and want to make things that have a reverberating effect on pop culture in some way. And so that's... Um, that's very ambitious. And then you get into the work itself and it brings with it quite a bit of compromise. And so it's art with compromise a lot of times. You're someone who in the short period of time I've known you and 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 enjoyed getting to know you, you know, you set a very high creative bar for yourself and those around you. What has been your relationship to compromise over the last decade? I think um I think uh, over the last decade, I think I I learned a valuable lesson when, um, and I guess this is maybe 15 years ago now, um, you know, I went off on my own with two other partners and, 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 and uh, um, started a small agency of our own. And I think for the first time ever in my professional career, I, I really had to eat absolute bucket loads of humble pie. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily think I compromised the work, but I was very aware, at least early on, that every decision I made reverberated through the business. Right. You know, I think I had the luxury prior to that of being quite sheltered. You know, I could be, and I'm not proud of it, but I could be a little difficult. I could be the, you know, and I was, I kind of took on as a, a bit of a, of a, of a crown, you know, the, the, the difficult creative in the agency, the one who wouldn't compromise, the one who would push through the best work. And, you know, if, if I needed to step on toes I would do it and I learned some really good lessons when when you know we were building our own place and that is you can still do really good work whilst learning I guess the art of compromise but also um, finding that balance between learning from others and listening to others but also trusting yourself I think one of the hard things to figure out is um, you know, if you stray too far either side of that line, I think you get it wrong. You know, if you are, you know, if you are unwilling to learn from others, you will never, I don't think you'll ever achieve too much. You know, you know, one of the things I think I'm really, you know, blessed um, 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 with right now is working, you know, inside McCann is, is we've got, you know, and people like you included such a collection of wonderful people who if you, if you, bring them in to your your thinking, it gets better. You know, sometimes you find yourself in a situation where um, you can't afford to do that necessarily. You know, you may well be at times, you know, the, the and you never want to be the smartest person in the room, but sometimes, you, you know, you find yourselves in positions where you are or you're the person who can see most clearly what needs doing, and that's almost harder. You know, to be that lone voice, that lone person who has to fight, yeah. You know, fighting all the time is tiring, and I think it eventually wears you down. But to be, 
surrounded by people who are who are a lot better at a lot of things than I am, it's great to be able to to listen to them and allow them into the process and they do likewise with me. So yeah, there are compromises at times because the reality is that we are a business and you know at the end of it, not every decision is made through the lens of purity, but that's there's no profession in the world that allows you to do that. Yeah. So I'm I'm comfortable with that, and sometimes, sometimes you're wrong, and every you know, and every now and again, you know, um, you think you're onto something amazing, and a, a colleague or or a client or my wife will point out, you know, where I've got it horribly wrong. Let's go back to Australia. If I was to walk into 12-year-old John's bedroom, mm. what are a couple of the posters I would see and and what did 12-year-old John want to be when he grew up? Um, 12, <laughs> 12-year-old John, I, I don't know if I was 12, but I wasn't much older than that. I was, uh, um, and this is pre-internet, of course, so at, at school we were handed the giant ring binder of, you know, what will you be when you grow up, an alphabetical guide to professions. And I stopped at A, and I literally I stopped at advertising. I stopped at advertising, and I read this, and I thought, this is this sounds good. This could be me, and I don't know whether it was laziness, or I figured, you know, you know when you know. But you know, I remember I I, I photocopied that that page, the advertising page from the ring binder, and took it home to my parents. I'm like, I think I know what I want to be, and they were like, this is not a real job. You know, you, you know, we want you to, you know, you can do better than that. Yeah. We want you to actually. You know, you know, milk have a bars profession. in need of running. Yeah, milk bars. You know, <laughs> trams. No, so I kind of forgot about it for a while and just then thought, oh, I don't know. I, I I didn't I didn't latch onto anything else. I just aimlessly studied and tried to get good marks. Right. And you know, and then I approached, um, you know, and I got decent marks at school. And and you know, when it came time to select university courses, you know, I'd forgotten pretty much all about advertising and just went down the list of yeah okay I'll you know I didn't uh, I didn't go on with mathematics I I don't think I had very good teachers and I thought I was really terrible at it so I did badly so the options open to me were law and and this is I still don't know how this works economics kind of makes sense it really doesn't when year one so I did economics yeah. and in, in, in and I year one I did really well in year two I had to delve deep into statistical methodology yeah, that part yeah. is way more mathematical, but there's certainly a sort of a psychology component to economics. Oh, absolutely, economics. And the reason I really loved it when I was studying it was it's it's behavioral science. Right. It is essentially aside from the hardcore microeconomics, you know, which is all the numbers. Yeah. It's really, you know, a study of human behavior, why we make the decisions we make. Yeah. And it is not really a science, it's actually an art form. And, you know, I got really interested in that and I was super engaged in, in, in the subjects that were around that. And I really seriously struggled at the, you know, at the, at the theoretical um, subjects, you know, the, 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 the math-based ones. So I was two and a half years into that and I was, you know, because I was blitzing it in half the course and, and miserably you know, performing now, I thought, this is not for me. Yeah. You know, career day came and it was uh, so, you know, I remember the, the, the they, they came to the university and all, you know, they set up all their booths for the, uh, the economics grads. And, you know, they thought they were enticing us with, okay, John, if you join, you know, the Reserve Bank of Australia in seven years' time, you will be at this level earning this. And in 15 years, like they mapped out right. your entire life. And most of the, you know, the, the kids around me, but they were yeah. like excited <laughs> by this because, you know, we were, I'd graduated in the middle of a recession right. and everyone was kind of like shitting themselves that they, you know, like they wouldn't get a job. And, and, and I think they were selling us um, security, yeah. but I was horrified by this. And then I remembered, you know, through that, you know, a couple of days later, I was, um, you know, I was just in, in the depths of, oh God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I remembered, you know, that day where I thought this advertising right. thing sounds like A and okay. the three ring binder. Yeah. So I, I kind of, I had another look at, at, at the profession and, um, and thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do. So I really quickly pivoted and, and I, I, I just, um, um, left university, um, got a really terrible book together because I didn't study it at all. I just, yeah. I, I got a DNAD annual and a couple of one shows and thought, okay, maybe I can do this and got a book together and, 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 and uh, just hustled my way around agencies and got a, a job in, you know, in, in probably the, the, 
you know, the worst agency in Melbourne, but worked up from there. You were also a competitive runner, correct? Mm. I was. I was. Um, I was. I loved running, and I still do. And um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm a competitive person by nature. And and again, you know, I think when I start, you know, you're kind of breaking me down here. It's the the chair. And running, these are things that I can <laughs> I can tackle as an individual and fail or succeed on my own merits. Right. So I, teamwork is something I had to learn. You know, I think naturally predisposed to, to, to um, attacking um, tasks that, that I can, you know, I can get inside and do inside my own head. But I, I loved running. I got pretty – I thought I was good uh, until I was, I was 19. And I kind of had dreams of – you know, maybe one day going to the Olympics, you know, um, and two things happened within the space of, of two months when I was at university. The first one was I, I did the, um, the Institute of Sport, did the program where they basically assess you for a full day, biopsies and, you know, torturing you on treadmills and whatever to yeah. essentially tell you what your ceiling would be. You know, this is where they can crush all your dreams. Right. It's like if they did this in advertising, they say, you will max at bronze. Right. You know, you may shortlist or, you know, Grand Prix. Awaits. And they can, you know, so it was like really, really scary stuff. And I kind of got the, well, look, if you if you train really, 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 really hard for the next 10 years. So by the time you're 28, you may be good enough to, you know, make the Commonwealth Games, which is kind of like, you know, it's 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 not exactly the, the, the Olympics, is it? And then, you know, like two weeks or two months after that, our training group brought out a few uh, Kenyan guys to train with us um for the summer and then i realized how good i wasn't yeah and i was like running alongside them like nah when i was I, in boulder the kenyans would come and train in the altitude and i'd be driving out to cpb which was kind of out in the middle of nowhere and just alongside the highway there would be a group of kenyan runners who were basically running as fast as my car yeah so but i did learn you know i learned um you know it's, i learned the rewards of of effort yeah. You know, I, I, as a student, I was kind of lazy. Uh, I gravitated to subjects that I could uh, succeed at with natural ability. But running teaches you that, you know, um, the person who works the hardest, unless you completely got no talent whatsoever, the person who works the hardest, you know, yeah, do you wins still, the most. Do you still find yourself drawing on lessons of running in terms of persistence and perseverance yeah. and toughness and endurance that – that are pretty clear parallels to the the job itself? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, the one thing, one of the really good lessons I learned was, you know, if you, it's much easier in life, if, you, if you're trying to do a really, really hard thing, which, again, you know, anything, if you want to be at the top of your profession or near the top or at least get the most out of yourself, that's really fucking hard. Yeah. It is really hard, no matter where you work or what your field is. And, you know, I found that, that, making a single commitment, um, you know, so at the start of the year, you say, you know, every single morning at five o'clock, I'm going to get up and I'm going to do my session. And I'm going to do a second one at the end of the day, I make one decision for the year. And I just take it out of my hands. I don't wake up every morning, you know, will I run? Will I not? Will I train? Will I won't? And I think focusing on not so much, you know, and I know the theory is you focus on a big goal and then you make yourself lots of small ones. But I found that it was actually easier for me to, to not allow myself to just make the decision, will I hurt myself today? No, that, that's a, it's like being, it's almost, you know, taking that power out of my hands. I'm almost telling myself, no, 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 it's, you know, you don't have the power to take it easy today. That's gone. And it made it easier for me. So, um, you know, I find that, and you, you know, you spoke earlier about high standards. I think, I think it's really, it's really cool to have ridiculously high levels of ambition for what your work can achieve. Understanding that you, you know, you mostly won't make it. Like Roger Federer loses yeah. way more tournaments than he ever wins, and he's a freak. But to have that level of ambition, almost, you've then got a. You've got the effort built into that because you've already got something to work towards rather than because some days you just, you know, some days are harder than others. You know, I mean, it's just we're human. Some days you wake up and you're like, oh, I just, you know, nothing's working today. Yeah. But that's okay. You can still put in effort or you can you can find another way of working on a problem that, that maybe, you know, 
relaxes your brain and go at it again. But I feel like life's too hard to be constantly faced with choices every day, you know? Yeah, it is. The, it's the it, the most intriguing part of the award portion of our job to me is that um, there's so much competition and it's all around the world. And, you know, just if we were going to talk about can, you know, thousands of entries, you know, 3% will win a lion, 1% will win a gold. But you win a lion and it's evidence that you might not be the best writer or creative director in advertising every day. But seven months ago for a two to four week period, you were among the best, you know, for that one period of time. And as you said, and then you start over again and, you know, maybe the next time, you know, you're feeling a little fatter and a little lazier or you're feeling a little bit, you know, less with your back against the wall, whatever it may be. Or maybe the the pressure is off and now you're feeling loose and your best self, you know, is coming to bear. But the 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 award is sort of interesting evidence that for, you know, a limited period of time, you were the best. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think, it, they they serve they serve an important function, and I think if they if anything relax you into you know when when things are getting hard to remind yourself no actually I'm good enough right. you know I at my best I'm pretty good, and I think it it allows you to not tense up you know there's it's a hard thing to to um, to be really serious about cracking a problem and then you know, tensing up about it and, and going in ever decreasing little spirals of, you know, dis, you know, of despair on something and, and being focused and relaxed at the same time is not, is not an easy thing to do. And again, I don't want to sort of keep going back to running, but that was, you know, one of the big things you learn is you've got to be able to be in absolute agony and, and wanting to die, but be loose right. at the same time. Stop grimacing, let yeah. your face bounce up and down loosely. Yeah, yeah but, but be killing yourself. Right. But as soon as you, 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 you manifest that physically, it's over. You tighten up and, and, and you don't get the best out of yourself. So how do you, how do you find a, a mental equilibrium where you are really wringing the most out of your brain, but you're loose about it at the same time? Yeah. What, do you remember a moment where maybe it was an ad or maybe it was someone you worked with where you either looked at the ad or looked at the person and said, that's what I want to do? It's funny. I, I, I taught myself or I tried to teach myself how to make advertising that didn't suck by all I really had to go by was, was the be- very best work in the world. And when I, when I you know, I, I poured over... DNAD and one show annuals and and these things are really intimidating because it's packaged up to you so perfectly you look at this is the you know to go from nothing to um, you know um, um, Tim Delaney's amazing long copy writing on Timberland and tourism campaigns and Abbott and Luke Sullivan and and, and these guys I I looked at their work and I understood the theory of it I thought okay I can see why this is good but it felt like a bridge too far for me to be able to do that myself. I was, I understood it, but I was intimidated by it, or I didn't know if I thought in theory I should be able to do it because I always loved writing, you know, from from the first moment I can remember. I loved to write and I could tell a story, and I wasn't a complete idiot, so I could. And I thought I understood human behavior, so I thought I had the raw material to be able to make good advertising, but I hadn't studied it formally. Right. So. I studied these, you know, guys' work, and I thought I got it, but it wasn't until um, I actually decided to um, take take their, you know, most of their posters, their print ads, and instead of looking at it in annuals, I just um, I looked at their work and thought, I can't do that. Look at that, that's perfect. But then when I just scribbled it out for myself, you know, I copied their ads with my own, in my mm. own shitty scribbles, but I could do that. All I need to find is a really good art director, and you know, I've, once I demystified um, and and um, what they did and 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 broke down the purity of it, it yeah. became a little more approachable to me. As a, as a precursor to talking about dumb ways to die, I would like to talk a little bit about the relationship between the size of a brief and the size of a client and the size of an opportunity, hmm. because it sounds like somewhere along the lines. Uh, and maybe a little bit of ego is helpful to this. You start to take on the belief that give me the toughest assignment, give me the assignment that no one else wants. Not only will I turn this into something adequate, but I'm going to turn this into something, you know, that that that's admired. 
Um, and so that's an awesome mentality to have. And now that you manage people, you, you hope that they take on any brief with that mentality. Um, but you have to start racking up some wins before you can, you know, you can start to sort of take on different briefs that way. So, you know, did that end up becoming kind of a specialty for you? Give me your toughest brief and not only will I churn out something, but I'll try to churn out something that's actually really good. Um, I think so because it's, and again, if you do something well, people give you another chance at it. Um, It's not something people particularly wish for. It's just, you know, you get a reputation for doing, um, you know, doing the tough things and doing them well. So, and that's the bread and butter of, of agencies. You know, if you can do the hard things well and you can do the unsexy um, or the supposedly unsexy pieces of business and, and, and do, you know, really good creative work on them, that not only does the client like, but real people like yeah. and actually works out in the world. I mean, you, you get a reputation for that. So you find the supposedly easy briefs kind of dry up, which I'm fine with, because every time I got a supposedly easy brief, I think, I, you know, nine times out of ten, I screwed it up. You know, I just don't believe in the, you know, the, the rays of God's light on the brief thing. Every time I thought, oh, wow, this is, this is an amazing brief. I'm going to do something incredible on this. It, 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 it hardly ever came through. It was the briefs that present the biggest problems. You know, the, I think the best brief, I mean, again, you know, great problems make great briefs right. with a great insight as well. Um, but, you know, the briefs where your first instinct is, I have no idea how we're going to tackle this this just seems too hard they're always that they're always the ones you don't always do great work on them but when i think back on the work that i'm proudest of i think just almost um to a campaign you know the initial thought is how the hell are we going to do this this just seems this is they're asking a lot this is really tough i don't know don't know and you know you you attack the problem and whenever you attack a problem rather than go straight into make ad mode you know right. if your focus is the problem then i always think that's a that's a great place to be because you end up making something designed to solve a problem and whatever form it takes it takes which i think probably makes sure that the the you allow the problem to take you to the solution rather than go into it with a fixed i want to make a funny piece of film right you know i want to do a lovely whatever so you know, it's a good way to make sure that your work, um, you won't have a style. You know, I think right. people who've got a style, I don't think they ever put the problem first. I think they put, you know, their own creativity first. Yeah. I mean, it's great to get the brief that's, hey, we're going to make a Super Bowl spot and yeah. we're going to start working on it in April. And no matter what you bring me, we're not going to decide on what this thing is until roughly January. So this is going to hurt. Everyone's paying attention and the budget is gigantic. You know, you've got to learn how to operate in that system. But it is a misconception that, um, you know, big budget, you know, big attention leads to big creativity. And you see over and over again in our industry that the best stuff is very little time, very little budget, while no one was looking in the dark of night, you know, all of a sudden the statue of a little girl popped up on on Wall Street or, you know. um, And so do you feel like you have to sort of coach that into young creatives now that you're in in a management position? Or do you think it's it's clear that like, you know, it's in the corners and it's on those fringes where no one is paying attention that you can do some of the best work of your career? I I think the important thing is to, you can't be you can't have inherent bias on any brief. I mean, I don't think, I think the budget doesn't matter. I mean, honestly, great work will come from anywhere. I don't think there's, there's no place that's harder or easier. Um, I think it's important to not have a belief system that says, can't do anything great on, you know, for, for, you know can't do anything great on, on, you know, that type of client. Or with this sort of budget, everyone's going to be so anally retentive. There's going to be a million eyes on it. You know, death by committee, it's going to be impossible. Or oh, there's only, you know, $5,000, can't do anything with that. Or they only want this, can't do anything. You can't have any right. of those. You just, you know, you know, you've got to teach people to, to attack the problem. And, you know, it could really, that's, that's all our industry is. You know, we get given problems... Um, that need to be solved through the power of creativity. That's all it is. We solve problems. Don't you problems. think, John, when we do that, and I'm guilty of this too, don't you think like we're just premeditating excuses in case 
in case it doesn't live up to our standards when we go, well, I mean, you know, it's, we don't even know what the answer is yet, but I can tell you that I'm already underwhelmed by it. <laughs> yeah, look, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, look, I, maybe I'm just stupidly optimistic. I always tend to think, you know, we can do something great. Right. And we don't always, of course. But I also get excited by problems. Um, and I think, I think we do give ourselves a lot of, yeah, because look, you know, we, we, we fail more than we succeed. I mean, you know, you've got to you got to learn the you know you got to learn the these not so subtle art of receiving rejection you yeah. know, in advertising, and it's the one thing people don't really talk about. You know, I mean, most of your career is no, you know, no, 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 and even with yourself, you, you know, I'm working on something, or you are, you know, well, for a hundred ideas that we come up with, we'll kill ourselves ninety-seven of them. They'll be shit. You know, yeah. it's a constant litany of not good enough, not good enough, not good enough, terrible, stupid. What were you thinking? No, 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 no. For those rare, ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. But it's not good enough. Keep pushing it. Keep pushing it. You know, it's this constant, um, you know, failure and rejection is always right in front of us. All We live with it. So, yeah, I mean, I guess we, we, we must try to insulate ourselves against the negative um, um, influence of that. You know, I think if you don't, you become too afraid of failure and you won't ever push things enough. You know, you'll settle for the six out yeah. of ten, which is a safe place to be. But, you yeah. know, I think everyone's scared and that's that's OK. That's well, normal. It's, it's where I wonder if maybe the most important part of our job is to be the origin of positivity around an idea. Because if the creative director can't if the creative director isn't optimistic that it's a good idea, then. Who else do you expect to to be the you know the advocate for it? And you're right. It's like it doesn't take a lot of courage or all that much effort to say why an idea is bad, why it oh, won't no. work, why it That's deserves true. to be rejected. To be the voice in the room that says like, hold on, yeah, this actually is really interesting. This could be really funny. That takes yeah. vulnerability. That takes courage. Yeah. And then you start to, you know, you. I almost feel like you're like a vampire. Then like one by one, can you sort of bite the people in the room who yeah. are who are cynical or skeptical? Absolutely. You know, any idiot can find, can see what's wrong with something. It takes no, no intelligence, no empathy, no skill, no sensitivity, really. It's, 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 but, you know, our job as creative directors is to find the good in things and, 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 and try and shine a light on that and elevate that, you know, find that one thing that's, that's perhaps interesting inside that little bucket of swill. And we do it in our own heads as well. We come up with a lot of rubbish. You know, it's it's hard to, you know, especially we grow up, um, you know, being trained to, you know, create our own ideas and push our own ideas. And then you've got to, when you, you know, when they make you a creative director, all of a sudden you now have to um, be exposed to other people's thinking and turn that part of your brain off that just wants to grab the brief and do it yourself and find that one thing that in amongst everything else that's wrong, that's actually, you know, that's really interesting. Let's push that a little more and, 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 and keep shining a light on that and, and elevating it and doing it with people as well, which I really love doing. You know, every agency, you know, is full of people who um, don't quite know how good, enough, you know, how good they are yet. Right. And finding things that they do well and celebrating those and magnifying them and making more out of it. It's kind of the fun part of the job. You know, I struggled early on making the switch from, you know, every idea must be mine because, you know, I grew up as a writer and that's how right. we're trained to, you know, actually having fun by making, helping make other people's work better and helping make other people better. But it's really, it is one of the joys of the job, but it's something you have to learn to do. So, so let's take this out of theory then. Um, we fast forward, your chief creative officer of McCann, Australia. A big part of your job is seeing the optimism in briefs. If the end result is dumb ways to die, what did the brief look like? So the brief was, it was a really simple verbal brief from the client, which was, look, um, you know, we've got, um, look, we want a rail safety campaign um, aimed at younger people because, Everyone, you know, there's 40,000 people who work on, uh, you know, in the system and they're constantly traumatised by either, you know, driving a train and seeing someone get hit 
or all the near misses they experience. Right. You know, they're sick of seeing people needlessly um, endanger themselves um, through, um, um, you know, stupid behaviors, through risky behaviors. You know, not necessarily being negligent, just being unaware. Is this the same Australia Department of Transit that your father worked for? No. Okay. No. So this is a public, this is a privately owned company. That would have been amazing, wouldn't it? (laughs) Do you want to just lie for the sake of the folklore? Yeah. (laughs) No, no, no. I don't want to lie. I've been very You don't need it. There's enough folklore without that. So, you know, so the brief really was, look, we, and, and this is where they were really smart. They were, look, we don't just want to run a safety campaign because, you know, we're mandated to do it or we think we should or have to. We actually want to try and change this behavior. And that's a great brief because straight away, you know, I think sometimes when you get, you know, a a PSA brief, your mind goes straight to, ooh, you know, I get to do some great creative work because, you know, we know so much great work has been done in the category, right? It It is a great brief to get because you can do something shocking and famous and, you know, you can, you can, you can, you can, use genuine raw emotional content in in your work but you know from the second we got the brief the focus at least for me and you know the the people inside the agency who worked on it was we just want to try and actually do something that'll work and we did some research um, ourselves and with the client and we couldn't find an example of a single rail safety campaign anywhere in the world that had ever done anything. Right. It's this weird thing with trains, apparently. People are scared of cars and understand they should be safe around them. But trains, for some reason, and I think it's Thomas the Tank Engine's fault, and, you know, like model trains, they're, they're happy and jolly and benign, and people right. aren't afraid of them, despite the fact, like in New York they are, because the subway is like a death trap, right? But in, you know, the rest of the world, trains are happy things. Right. But and it and it struck me as this is I got really angry. Now the, these things run on fucking tracks. If you accidentally get hit by one, it's your own fault. Like it, it's no one else's fault but yours. And you know, a couple of weeks before we got the brief, you know, apparently there was a, a teenage girl who was sitting on the edge of the train platform, right, with her legs dangling over the edge. She had a you know. Um, um, iPhone, listening to music, head was turned the other way and she got hit by a train and lost her legs. And, you know, you hear things like this and you think, Jesus, it's just, it, it, really got, it really got me angry. Yeah. Please don't sit there. Yeah. So from anger, which is a genuine, it wasn't an advertising emotion. We weren't you know, given a brief, which is, make, you know, it, it was just looking at the problem as a normal human being. And, but that's a very provocative thought, though a simple one is like, are you allowed to be angry at the victim yeah yeah so are you allowed to be angry at the victim even if the victim uh paid the ultimate price for for their mistake and again i mean talk about um you know you can't do great work without a great client and not only did they approve a piece of work that said people who get hit by trains are idiots right which is completely counterintuitive but they approved a piece of work that, that 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 positioned their product as dangerous and deadly that will maim and kill you in a way that was just... What the hell were they thinking? uh, Again, you know, (laughs) it was... And there was was such a wonderful um, 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 pragmatism to this. And, you know, I think in smaller markets like New Zealand, Australia, where you don't necessarily have the budgets, people can be quite pragmatic. We just need this to work. And, you know... All the way through the process, you know, we, 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 we talk through, we are making this decision because we believe this will achieve this effect and we believe it will work. And they said yes all the time because they believed that it would actually do something, despite the inherent risks of approving and, 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 and airing a piece of work like that. The genesis of the idea, presumably as a humble paragraph or two in a Word document somewhere. Yeah. How closely did it, it was, resemble the thing you ended so, up making? So the scribble said, um, um, dumb ways to die. That was the, because it went from, um, so it's a fucking stupid way to get killed to um, um, dumb way to die and then dumb ways to die. And this was done inside of, 
48 hours. Yeah. And then once we had Dumb Ways to Die as a thought, I, I don't know how we got to this, but it was we should write a song. So I wrote the lyrics. And again, and, and the song's going to be super dark, but it'll, it'll be this, you know, this um, kind of waif-like um, yeah. woman, um, sort of, you know, um, folksy um, song, and we'll, we'll set it to that. So I wrote the lyrics in in one night, and, and they're about 80% intact. There was some stuff there that I pulled out because it was either it was, wasn't funny enough or it was just pushing some buttons that I really didn't want to push. Was it like a fever dream? Did you have any songwriting experience no, prior to that? No, never written a song. Never written a song. Never written a song before. But again, I mean, you listen to enough songs and if you think about how things work, yeah. you, you know the mechanics of it. So presented it to the client as just a one pager. So it was, a, it was the lyrics um, and a five minute verbal explanation of how we think this might work. We basically said, you know, you know, we want, you know, we, we talked through why the language was the language, you know, we wanted to use. We wanted to create a language around this where young people could 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 adopt as their own and use. Because, again, you know, the best way to get a young person to do something is tell them not to do it and vice versa. Yeah. They're not going to listen to us, but maybe they'll listen to their friends. And actually, I, th- I really believe in the power of language. And I know advertising is incredibly visual and sometimes we forget how important a piece of language or a phrase is. And, you know, I think the language was a huge, huge part of the success of it because it was something that um, allowed our audience to take ownership of it. And again, client was, was amazing in that, that they were happy for us to make a three-minute piece of film that didn't reveal their message, didn't reveal them until two minutes and 58 seconds and didn't really reveal the message of train safety until about two, two minutes 40. Right. A lot of people said it was too long, didn't listen to them, started to listen to them but stopped, which I'm happy about because it was too long. Right. But sometimes, you know. But sometimes counterintuition is yeah. the best creativity. Yeah. Uh, so at this point, you had become a student of advertising and a student of winning advertising when did you realize that you were onto a winner? At what point in the process? Look at it. Early on, we thought this is honestly either going to be the worst thing. I thought this will be the worst thing I've ever done, or it'll be really, really cool. Okay. So early on, I mean, that's one of those ideas that that if you get it wrong, it'll be the worst thing you've ever done in your career, and you'll be a massive laughing stock. But if crass. you get it right, yeah. yeah, yeah, and it could have been again. It's all in the execution. All right like most things are, but especially ideas that are on the edge. If you don't execute, it's like risky humor. Like, you know, I mean, you have permission to be, to to address taboo topics with humor as long as you are genuinely funny and genuinely charming. If you are not, you're fucked. Then you're just, you know, you're fired. You know, I mean, comics face this all the time. We knew that this was going to work when, because we, we, we brought in Julian Frost, who was the illustrator animator, who was amazing. And we actually brought him into the, inside the creative department um, to do all the animation with us during, it was over about a month. So, you know, we, we, were, we were seeing it come to life. And because it was really simple flash, like, you know, we could do a scene in a day. So if it wasn't funny enough, we'd change the lyrics, you know, and, and really work yeah. with him. And... It started to dawn on us that, that you know, uh, when you're making something, you get sick of it, you know, really quickly. Yeah. And by the time you finished it, you kind of hate it. Or you don't know. You just don't know I mean, what you're looking yeah, at anymore. Yeah. yeah. Like we'd been working on this thing and like everyone was being tortured by the song. I mean, my God, you, you know, you think you've had it bad. I had to live with this thing for months. But, but you know, after, you know, two months of making this, people were still gathering around, you know, the screen and laughing at little pieces of animation and thinking, I think this is going to work. I think this is actually going to be funny. I think this is actually going to be infectious. So Dumb Ways to Die wins five Grand Prix. That's the most from any single campaign in the history of Cannes. Uh, you know, all of a sudden you are thrust into the echelon with the names that you mentioned earlier, you're enough of a student of advertising at this point to sort of understand what this means for your career. How dizzying was all of this to be at Cannes when all of this was happening over the course of a four-day period? It, that was a that was a crazy week because I just finished um, 
it was the longest. It was actually two weeks because I just I finished judging promo and activation. So I was there the week leading up to the awards. So I was in Cannes for so long. I think it was like fear and loathing in, in <laughs> Vegas. I just I was fried completely. But you know the 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 crazy thing, it was it I knew it was something that I'd probably never experience again because forget the the number of awards. Everyone there seemed to be really happy that it was winning. Right. You know, it was one of those campaigns, maybe because it was made with no cynicism. It came from an agency that no one had really thought of. It was for a client no one had heard of at the arse end of the world. And it was, it just seemed to make people happy. Like, you know, people were just happy that this thing was was being sung and winning and, and you know, people coming up like, you know, like, like you know, like young creatives are like, oh, man, I love it. And then, you know, like, like you know, people at the really senior pointy end of the business, like my kids love it. You know, it's like it just it people seem to it made people happy. For sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting to hear you talk about sort of the power of joy in a jury room and you and i have had separate conversations about this and you gave me advice that i'll never forget and you're like you know the the way to win is you know these jury just to understand who the jury is and the jury is made up of you know longtime marketing professionals and so much of what is made in the marketing industry is is intrusive you know some of it emulates litter it's people that it's it's stuff that is infiltrating people's lives with uninvited messages. And so to present our industry with work that that makes us proud to be in this industry is sort of like that's the secret sauce um, to kind of, you know, to, to infiltrating the jury room. Yeah, I think, um, you know, whenever you make work or you see work that makes you feel good about your decision to, you know, be in advertising and stay in advertising – it's going to do something in the room. And again, it, you can tell, you know, you can tell work that's been created um, from a cynical point of view a mile off. And you can also tell work that was created from a pure place. Yeah. And I love that sort of work. And we all do. And, and look, it's fine. I mean, you know, you can't always make work like that. You know, I mean, it's, you know, when you're working to a brief, you know, sometimes the brief sort of forces you down a path where, you know, you, you, you're being professional and you, you, you're pushing the kind of obvious buttons because they're the you know they're the buttons you need to push in order to get the job done but every now and again you come across a piece of work that just that just is joyful it doesn't yeah. have to be funny it just it, it just it elevates the you know the soul the spirit there's something to it beyond the commercial message you know it's better than it needs to be you know you always right. you always love seeing a piece of work and and I always think you know the best thing the best attitude we can have as, as advertising people is to be constantly subversive, to be subverting people's idea of what a piece of marketing can look like. You know, Fearless Girl did that. Yeah. Sometimes you can be subversive by just making something more beautiful than, than you know, anyone has a right to expect it can be. You know, you don't always have to fundamentally change, you know, like, you know, what the, you know, the guys at Crispin did. You know, they fundamentally changed what people thought advertising was and could be and they were, you know I learned so much from afar watching what they were doing sometimes it's just refusing to accept um, other people's standards you yeah. know it's always great when you when you see work that you can you can see people thought nah fuck that let's you know, yeah. <laughs> let's it's a hard let's thing to do one. it's a hard thing to do and it can be my greatest frustration is is you know to make something and the the large email comes through that says, oh, the client is so happy. And you take a real self-appraisal and you look at the work and you say, oh, I know we're in the business of making clients happy, but like, mm. what do we do when the client's happy, but I'm not happy? Yeah. And look, you know, in a perfect world, we have the kind of relationship with the client where we all want the same thing. You know, we want an idea that will help solve their problem or seize their opportunity in a way that will go out into the world and fundamentally change the way people think and act. It'll have real-world creative impact. You know, we'll always disagree on, on, on elements of style and personal opinion on, you know, I think that should be smaller or bigger or I don't like that actor. Or, But if we can agree on what impact we want the work to have in, to, in a human 
perspective, not sales, right? Well, of course we want sales, but if we can agree on the real world creative impact of our work, then we should both be happy, yeah. you know? And I think, you know, often, you know, it leads you to ideas that, that aren't necessarily artistically beautiful, but have amazing creative impact for the brand. And again, I'll go back to, you know, the, the you know, the, the, the stuff that Crispin pioneered, you know, Whopper Freakout and stuff. I mean, you look at that and you're not seeing a perfect piece of film. No. You are seeing the impact of an idea on the world. And that's great for the client because all they ever want is people to talk about their brand in a positive way. And all you want is for people to love what you do. Right. And, you know, and the great thing that, you know, award shows have done over the last decade, and, and I guess, you know, Crispin forced this on the industry is you got to recognize work. Stop recognizing just beautiful pieces of beautiful rectangles, perfect posters, and 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 films and print ads, and recognize ideas that you can't, um, you know, express in a simple piece of film or a poster, but have amazing creative impact in the world. And I think those are the sorts of ideas that, um, you know, if you do have a client that maybe you're constantly fighting with in terms of, you know, what you believe is a, is 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 great advertising you know go down the path of you know find some common ground yeah find some common ground you have a uh, you you used a turn of phrase about two years ago that i've stolen from you shamelessly which is to create ideas uh that you can release into the wild and it almost when you said it it's like i imagine sort of a tiger whose cage has been opened up and you have a sense of what that tiger might do in the middle of central park uh, and the chaos that it can create and the havoc that it can, it can create in a good way but the best ideas actually, they, they have a, a reverberating effect that, you know, even the most ambitious among us can't quite, you know, can't quite anticipate. Um, and that's where it gets really exciting. And you saw it, you know, this year with some of the, the Xbox controller work and yeah. people will take it and they will take ownership of it and they will use it yeah. as a conduit to their own creative expression. Yeah. And it's great. And, and I love that, that franchise work because, again, you know, that's the kind of idea um, that, you know, client bravely understands that people will mess with it. You know, someone made a pro-Trump controller and someone made an anti-Trump controller. Yeah. And you've got to be fine with that. Now, if you're creating ideas that are designed to go out in the world and you understand that what you are really making is the start of something, you're kind of like just kicking it off. Right. And you're going to let it happen. And as long as you've got, you know, a really smart, idea it'll continue to communicate you know what the client needs it to but you know people will ultimately take control of it and that's fine can be a little scary yeah you know um but you know when you think about the ideas that you love they all have the potential to go one or you know one of two ways don't they there's always that kind of flip side to them yeah you know disaster lurks <laughs> yeah so uh your success at McCann Australia crescendoing with Dumb Ways to Die was really your bridge to the U.S. And I actually I remember you sitting in the lobby of McCann. I was freelancing there at the time and I was with Rob. He had just started at, at McCann uh, World Group and he kind of pointed to you and he's like, that guy with the crazy hair, that's the Dumb Ways to Die guy. He was getting ready to spend some time with you and I think sort of convinced you to come over. Um, your, your role now... Uh, well, your primary role now is global ECD of McCann World Group. You know, that ECD title can mean different things at different agencies. How do you think about the job? How do you approach the job now that you're you're here in New York? Yeah, look, I, I have two, I guess I have two jobs. And the first one is global ECD. I, you know, I, I work across um, our global brands. Uh, I have um, stewardship for, for one in particular. And, you know, I, I come in and out, you know, to either, you know, help out or, or you know, on, 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 you know, any of the global brands that we work on. So, and the second job is to, um, is to, to lead the um, global creative community and, and, and run the, you know, the council meetings we have. There's 12 of those a year yeah. across the regions, which you know, because you're, you're in them. And uh, so really, look, you know, my job is to, is to firstly make sure that, that, you know, we have the highest possible standards across our, our, our biggest clients, our global clients. Um, and that's really important. You know, that's something that Rob, um, you know, is, is a 
huge believer in it. And I think it's, it's such a wonderful philosophy that, you know, our, our goal is to do our best work on our biggest clients because really that's, you know, that's what we're in business of doing. And, you know, we, we, we want to do work that actually makes a difference. And, and, and you know, part of the, the thrill of being, you know, in New York is I have direct exposure to, you know, huge clients with, you know, with, with beautiful big meaty problems and nice budgets and, and, and big ambitions. So part of the reason I moved here was to be in the center of things. And you really are sort of the case study whisperer. You know, I think when you first become a creative director, you have a certain distance from the work where sometimes your feedback to teams is like, it feels so obvious because you have the distance and you're not, you know, you're not so emotionally tied up in it. And I feel like kind of what the creative director team relationship is within any agency is what you have with us CCOs and ECDs across the network, which is you you have some distance, you know what does well and what performs not so great in jury rooms. And so you have a perspective that you can bring to our work and our case studies that just give it the best shot at, you know, gaining notoriety and telling, you know, the best version of the story. Um, you know, it, it's in some ways, based on what we've talked about, it's like the perfect role for you. It's a very interesting and unique role. Um, and, and you took to it very quickly. Uh, have you been enjoying that role? And, and, and do you find that it's difficult at all? Because there are a lot of, you know, people with big job titles and, you know, it doesn't feel like a clash of egos, but y you have to be careful to let people own their own work as well. Yeah, look, I, you know, I think we've got a, an amazingly collaborative um, spirit inside McCann World Group. And, and, you know, we have these meetings and everyone just wants their work to get better. And there's no, I try not to have this sort of top-down sense of hierarchy to it. You know, we're all, we're all working creatives. We yeah. all just, you know, dig in and try and make the work better. And I think, you know, a lot of people hate case studies. And look, they're no fun, to be honest. They're no fun making them. But I think the most important way to think of a case study is it's really just the story of your idea. And in a perfect world, as soon as you've got an idea that you think could be amazing, right, the first thing you should do before you start working on the idea is write um, your case study outline. You know, in a year's time, what do you, you know, what's the story you want to tell of what this idea achieved in the world, including results, including impact? You know, what do you want your idea to achieve? That is, and then you work to that. You know, case studies shouldn't be, you know, at the end of a process, okay, now let's, you know, cobble together a case study to try and convince a jury that, you know, the work was better than it really was. That never works. Right. You know, you know, a great case study does justice to what the idea did in the world. But, you know, a great way to look at the case study is, as a working creative, in fact, everyone in the agency, from planners to um, account people to creatives to production, before we start making the work, we should have a very clear understanding of what we want this work to achieve, what impact we want it to have in the world, because it does inform how you execute it. It does inform the channels you use. It does inform the way you make the work. You know, it, it can expose weaknesses through the creative process. If you think, you know, if you've got a clear, probably blue sky ambition for the impact you want your ideas to have, write it down and then try and make that happen. Yeah. You know, it's kind of a, it's, it's a good way to think because it forces, it, it creates a common language inside the agency because sometimes part of the problem is creatives speak one language and, you know, um, business leadership speaks another and, and strategy speaks another. But if we all agree on what we want this to achieve culturally, you know, the impact in the world, you know, what, how do we want people to behave as a result? What do we want the impact to be? It's kind of a really cool way to get everyone inside the agency behind the idea, excited by it and willing to work to, you know, to make it a reality. Do you think each year is almost like a reaction to the winners from last year? So if last year's winners feel sort of heavy leaning towards social causes, then this year will sort of be not a rejection of social causes, but maybe those case studies will be viewed with a with a stronger sense of cynicism. Is that the is that the normal the normal way of things at the oh. at the major shows? Um, oh, look, I think after about three years, I remember you know um, by the third year of Coke doing vending machines, people are like no. Yeah. Okay, enough. <laughs> this is amazing, but uh, sorry, I'm just not fine. You can have a bronze, but no higher. Like, you know, yeah. you do get, no, look, you don't, you don't get pushback against themes. I think the industry, 
you know, is very good at, 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 at gravitating towards social conversations. And I think the themes ebb and flow because we do um, very quickly align to, to you know, societal um, moods and changes and conversations. So you get a natural. Every, every year has different themes based on what's happening in the world. You know, our holy grail is work that lands in culture and shapes it or at the very least belongs in culture. Yeah. So you do find that every year there are themes, but I think that's not necessarily, um, you know, so, it, you know, I don't think juries attach themselves to themes so much as they're presented to us and we award in the moment. But yeah, there are, there are techniques that um, I think we definitely push back against. You know, you know, again, the, the vending machine is a classic example, but there's, you know, there, there, there are plenty of others where people go to the well once too often on a certain right. style and a certain technique. When you see yourself in a, in a young creative, uh, what exactly is it that you see? And, and is, it a, is it a good thing or a bad thing predominantly? Oh, look, I, I see when sometimes I see people and think, yeah, you remind me of me. It's people who aren't afraid to be themselves. Right. And that's not just in a creative. I mean, I, and I always, you know, if we have interns in, I always sort of try and, you know, you know, tell younger people that it's, it's okay to be yourself. You won't be punished. In fact, in many ways, you'll be rewarded. You know, sometimes you can fall into the trap of thinking, well, okay, I'm going to go work for that organization. I need to, you know, I need to, to, to blend into their culture. I need to be, you know, you go work at McCann or you go work at, you know, wherever. I need to be like those guys. No, you don't. Right. We, we hire you because of you. Be yourself. And I think people who, for whatever reason, aren't afraid or don't know any better, I, I kind of, I, I love seeing that. And I love seeing people succeed because of who they are, not because they figured out, you know, the system, which, again, anyone can do. It's like there's a lot of people who do well at school that are terrible in life. Do well at school, you just follow the, the rules. Yeah. You, you you figure out, you know, the system. And that's not the way life works, though. You know, people, you know, you know, um, school smart people often get found out when, you know, the rubber hits the road sure. in, in the real world, which is kind of, I kind of, I don't mind that. I think it's kind of cool. I love the mix in our industry of high IQ people and high EQ people who, yeah. you know, struggled through school and kind of, you know, found their tribe quite late uh, and then, you know, and then blossomed, you know, long after, you know, they, they yeah. thought their sort of oh, fate had been written. Yeah. Look, we have, I mean, to, to succeed in, you know, inside advertising, particularly inside creative You've got a really weird mix of, of traits that I think, you know, um, I don't know. I don't know if you can teach most of these. I mean, yeah. and it, maybe it doesn't, uh, you know, um, set you up for success in a lot of other areas in life, but right. it, it works. And and you know, people like us come from anywhere. Yeah, we've talked about failure a bit, uh, and and the ability to get kicked in the nuts and come back and forget about failure quickly. Um, do you have a favorite failure of your career that was felt devastating at the time but maybe set you up emotionally for success later in your career look for me the the every time um you know um i lose a pitch it kills me it really hurts it hurts so much i mean look i don't mind um i bounce back pretty quickly from client didn't like that idea okay there's another one but there's a finality to a pitch. When you lose it, you can't, that's it, it's gone forever. And I really fucking hate that. And it just feels like a 100% deep, dark, awful personal failure. Because yeah. you, you, there's no, um, there's, 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 you know, there's no coming back from that. You don't get a second chance. You know, I, I, I don't, you know, I, I ease, I, you know, I, I, or I got used to pretty quickly clients saying, I don't like that. I'm like, fine, I'll give you something better. Because, you know, that you keep coming back for more. It's fine. But, but, oh, God, I hate losing pitches and it kills me. And I never really recover from them. But, you know, the only thing you can do is win the next one. And then when you do, it's more relief than anything. Yeah. You know, I always, the only, you know, I, I don't have a fear of losing anymore. It's just pitches. That's the only time that the fear of losing probably motivates me more than the, the joy of winning. The funny thing about the pitching is, you know, so often you'll win a pitch and what you've won is the right to start over. Yeah. And, and essentially what that client will tell you is like, you know, you, you didn't even have all the information. This was sort of a, this was a test of, you know, your 
calm under pressure and our chemistry with you. And now you've earned the right for us to kind of start from scratch. And you're fine with that. But if that's true, then when you lose, it's hard not to, you know, extrapolate that like, Maybe they just didn't like us personally. Oh, yeah. No. They didn't like our faces. Yeah. Look, you, yeah, you lose a pitch either because your work was really, like, really wrong right. and awful. Or, yeah, they just didn't like you, and that's fine. You know, you can't like everyone. And, and you, you, you're trying to find partners to work with. And, and there'd be something wrong if you won every pitch. Something incredibly right. But, I don't, you know, that, that would be weird. But, no, that's okay. But it, it still hurts. Yeah, you are being rejected personally. You know, they don't like you, Omid. When you lose that pitch, it's your fucking fault. They just thought you... And same with me. Well, you know what, John? Like, I don't like them either. Nah, fuck them. Um, I, I like to end these conversations with the same two questions. And the first is sort of a continuation of what we were just talking about. Maybe uh, it was in a pitch environment for you, which is what is the most embarrassing or horrifying response you've ever heard from a client to a piece of work that you've presented in the room? Um, I had a client once who his grasp of English was really terrible. He really struggled. And I was showing the, uh, the, the, the offline cut to 45-second TVC, and he got so infuriated by it, he couldn't get his words out, so he spat at the screen. <laughs> oh, spat on the TV screen. <laughs> that was pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, you don't recover from that. But the thing is, I'm kind of the uh, universal language of, yeah, of, of dislike. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. And and and, but luckily he was kind of on secondment, um, so we only had to put up with him for another six weeks. And I was like, I'm not going back there for six weeks. And like, yeah, none of us are. We're just gonna <laughs> let's all quit. But yeah. yeah, that was pretty hardcore. Yeah. Uh, and the final question is called the one that got away. What is that one idea from any point in your career uh, that you've never been quite able to sell? Uh, but it just it lives inside of you, and you know that if it got made, it would have been it would have been awesome. You know what? I I've still got it, and I think I can still sell it. So I can't say, which is a really anticlimactic ending to no. this. No, it's but okay. no, it's, I'm I'm kind of obsessed by this idea, and um, I still think we can make it. But a lot of planets have to align. That's the runner in awesome. you. That's the resilience and perseverance that. Uh, you're not giving it away yet because you still believe you can win that race. Yep. No, I can. And and look, you know, and even if you don't, that's fine. It's nice to it's nice to have ambitions. You know, mostly you're horribly disappointed, but every now and again you're not. Yeah. Which is cool. John, I've really enjoyed your mentorship but more so than that. I've really enjoyed your friendship over the past few years and uh, I appreciate you sitting down with me, man. This was great. Absolute pleasure. Anytime. Well, no. I mean, if we did this daily, that would be boring. No for one everyone. wants that. Let's no. just do this this one time. Yeah. And then we can talk without microphones other times. Yeah. We'll have a beer. Deal. All right. Thank Thanks. you, mate. All right. Thank you so much to my friend, John Meskel. Thank you to The One Club. Thank you to JSM Music and Jeff Fiorella, who produces this podcast. Also, a special thanks to Acoustic in Atlanta, who helped with the production of this episode. Hey, if you're digging the pod, please subscribe, maybe leave a review, share it with a friend or colleague. Until we talk again, peace. Peace.